Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with James M. Scott, um, friend of the show, uh, author of the brilliant Rampage, Black Rain, but also The War Below. And James, you and I are sitting out on your porch in your absolutely stunning house in Mount Pleasant, which is a kind of former little village <laughs> on the other side of the river, the other side of the sea from Charleston in South Carolina, but is now a kind of, um, what's the name of that TV show they shoot here? Oh, uh, the Outer Banks. Yeah, That's so this is this is where they film the Outer Banks, set for the Outer Banks, and uh, it's an absolutely stunning part of the world. It really is is absolutely gorgeous, and and the porch is everything you can imagine a traditional American porch should be. Um, it's very uh, Norman Rockwell. Yeah, think Norman Rockwell, and <laughs> exactly. and, and you're absolutely there. Um, but but you know we've been talking a little bit about. Um, about Charleston, the history of Charleston, and you, you showed me Fort Sumter, of course, mm-hmm. yesterday, and um, which was amazing to see because, of course, that's where the Civil War began. Yeah, absolutely. No, it really is. I mean, there's so much uh, military history runs through Charleston from the Revolutionary War. Of course, the first shots of the Civil War were fired right here. The, you know, the first battle was for Fort Sumter right in Charleston Harbor. Uh, you know, the first shots actually fired by Citadel Cadets, which, of course, is the military school right here in, yep. in Charleston as well. So, uh uh, there's really just a long history of, um, of American military history that runs right through Charleston, so all the way up until today. Air Force Base still here operating, sending supplies all over the world. I mean, it's a uh, yep, very much so. Uh, and also, it's a, it's um, it's got quite a lot of naval history too, hasn't it? And you've got you've got the USS Yorktown, the second one. Yep, yeah, the Yorktown is here. Uh, the destroyer Laffey is here, and for a little bit longer we have the submarine Clamagore, although it's in pretty bad shape, and I, I believe they're getting ready to turn it into an artificial reef. It's built at the end of World War II, but served largely as a Cold War vessel. So, so what's the Laffey? What when was that around? It was a, um, a World War II destroyer. In fact, it had the nickname of the ship that wouldn't die. It was hit by five kamikazes. And, wow. Uh, so yeah. So it, is it Okinawa? Was it? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Philippines. A, yeah, it's a, all the latter part of the war there, and. Um, because, of course, the kamikazes don't really begin until Battle of Leyte Gulf in the Philippines. So, but, yeah, so it, uh, it, took a, it took a beating. It kept on going. It's been here for tourists. They redid the hull a few years ago, so it's in good shape. So, uh, yeah. Great. So I've been reading about uh, – I've been reading your book, The War Below, which is, is just completely brilliant. And um, as anyone who's been listening to the various episodes over the last couple of years will know, I'm kind of – I've got a kind of – a sort of creeping obsession with the U.S. submarines operating in the Pacific and, and that whole story. And what you do very cleverly is you follow three um, U.S. submarines, silver-sized um, drum and tang, mm-hmm. through the course of the war, and you chart the whole kind of story and how how the, the U.S. Navy recognized that there was a golden opportunity here to yeah. kind of really start to strangle Japanese shipping. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the American submarine war in the Pacific, I mean, it really is what eventually breaks the Japanese economy. I know in my most recent book I look at the firebombing and all that because it, it you, it's a lot easier to visualize burned cities and, 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 and that kind of wreckage than it is to see, you know, crops rotting on docks and 
Korea and places like that because the submarine blockade has been so effective and it's broken the backs of the Japanese economy. But the submarine war is, is, is a huge part of Japan's defeat. And it really, though, is a war in which the seeds of victory are planted immediately after the First World War. Right. Because the Americans saw what Germany did to England and said, you know what, we're going to learn from that. And so they actually got all these captured U-boats, brought them over to the U.S., pulled them all apart, figured out what made German submarine design so much more superior to the American design, and then really spent that interwar period designing one effective boat. And that was, of course, you know, the... Uh, this is the Gato class. Exactly. And so, and, and then what we did is we just mass-produced it. So you had one boat that's literally about the length of a football field. It's about 27 feet wide. It's designed to be able to go out to sea for up to three months, carry 24 torpedoes, mm-hmm. uh, and really be able to take the war to the opposite side of the Pacific. And then so, course- so it can just travel... Yeah. Absolutely, thousands of miles. Totally. I mean, these, I mean, these are really long patrols, aren't they? This, oh, absolutely. This is not kind of a couple of weeks. This no, is, no, this, this is months. Is, this, this is months. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're, they're designed really to be able to go for up to three months. And you have to remember, not only are you taking twenty-four torpedoes, you've got to carry everything from enough food and fuel and yeah. all of that for that kind of time period. And so, um, so while the while the engineers are sort of building that perfect boat, you see a real overhaul of the how are we going to fight these boats? Sort of the strategy for using them. And so, so often up until then. Submarines were kind of part of fleet activities. They were used them for West Coast defense or the Panama Canal right. or as part of fleet operations. And so you had these really great... So they're a defensive weapon rather than an aggressive exactly. attack weapon. And that's what you see that changes during that interwar period. Uh, who, so who's driving that? Who are the guys that are kind of leading Yeah, you that have forward? a core group of submarine officers who were in that interwar period who saw what happened during World War One and who were really pushing that. And if just like the same thing with the challenges with naval aviation, yep. uh, which is you, you're up against a battleship navy, which is you've got these senior leaders in the American military and the American Navy who are not like, thinking big and stuff. Not thinking big, thinking everything is going to be an auxiliary to the battleship. And of course, World War II is not about the battleship anymore. No, it's about carriers. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a battle. It's war fought in the heavens, yep. and it's a war fought underwater. Yeah, and that is what defines the naval war so much yep. in the in the Pacific. And uh, well, yes, because it's. I mean, you know, it's been it's been said that the aircraft carrier before the Second World War, but not everyone realized it has has usurped the battleship as the preeminent warship. Yeah, but actually, I wonder whether you can could actually sort of change that and go, maybe the submarine is also on that level in terms of strategic tactical importance. Well, I'll be honest with you. The the submarine actually is, okay, when you think of naval warfare in the Pacific and you think of big battles like Midway or or Mm. Leyte Gulf, I mean, you have these these flash moments of just hellacious fighting. I mean, Midway, don't get me wrong, four Japanese aircraft carriers lost in the span of 24 hours. That's incredible. But the submarine war is a lot harder. There's not like a single battle. It is a war that's fought day after day, week after week, Truly month traditional. after month. It's, it's absolutely traditional, and it is, it is all about tonnage on the seafloor. And so in Japan, of course, is a materially bankrupt nation. You know, they, they, yeah, so let's, get, let's just go back. I mean, we, we've touched on this before on the pod, but, but about, about Japan. But, it, I mean, it's, it's mainly four islands. Yeah. Honshu's the, the, yeah, the big the one. Island, that's absolutely. Tokyo and all the rest of it and all the, all the, main, the main bases. Geographically, it's incredibly varied. Yeah. You know, icy snow and kind of mountains in the north and, and kind of still mountains in the south, but, but kind of a bit more temperate, right? Yeah. And then, and then even tropical. I mean, really, you get down to right. like Okinawa and whatnot. And it's, 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 right. It's, it's Which even. is, it's, I mean, how far is Okinawa from, from Honshu? Um, I mean, like 150 miles, or is it more? Oh, it's more than that. Yeah, like yeah, 250. Yeah, it's, yeah. No, it's 400, 500. Yeah, it's, it's a lot bigger. I mean, it's a flight. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, yeah, you're okay. getting so it's, it's a long way. Yeah, it's a, it's okay, a long, long but, way. Okay, but, but 
it's it, because it's got so many mountains. Yeah. The kind of land it's got for agriculture is pretty limited, and certainly not enough to kind of keep 73 million people alive. Exactly, and it's 85% mountainous, and it affects everything. 85%, I mean, that's yeah, a huge amount. It affects it? everything about Japan, from the lack of uh, agricultural space to its transportation development. And so, because you can't build train systems through mountains very easily, right. or road systems. And so, so everything's moving by ship. Even, even like sort of coastal way. convoys, coastal freighters, kind of, you know, skipping down between the ports. Totally. It's a, so it's everything's a mar- around the edge. It's a maritime highway system. And so, and not only that, you're having to import everything. I mean, they can't even grow enough rice for their population. Because not only that, I mean, not only did Japan, it, it saw its population triple in the years leading up to World War II. And so literally, Japanese seamen are having to go, um, fishermen are having to go all the way as far as Alaska in order to catch enough fish. Uh, just to be able to support its population, they're having to import food from China, the Philippines, everywhere else around. Really, there. and so the uh, Philippines is a stretch and a half. Yeah, and so they, so it's really it's the perfect adversary for a submarine war. Because right. if you can strangle them, you can starve them, yep. and that's effectively what the submarines do. We end up in about 288 submarines uh, fighting in the Pacific War, and literally by the end of the war, they have they decimate the merchant uh, fleet uh, so much so. I mean that the uh, they can't even get enough oil in. Mm-hmm. Uh, battleships are left parked, you know, yep. for anti-aircraft duty. Uh, kamikazes are a direct result of the fact that they can't get enough fuel in there to train their pilots. I mean, it affects every aspect. You can't get in, you can't import enough food, so you see the daily caloric intake of the population plummet. Uh, I mean, it's there's not a segment of that society that is not directly affected by just how successful the American submarine blockade is. But so what is what is what is the level of you, you were talking about the Gato class and mm-hmm. this development of a of a you know half decent submarine in the 1930s but h- how big is the submarine arm by kind of 1940 41 yeah, because because one of the kind of great failings i think of of the germans in the second world war is that when they developed the z plan this naval plan which gets sort of launched mm-hmm. It's all about battleships and aircraft carriers and aircraft carriers that, of course, they never build. Yeah. At the neglect of the submarine force. Yeah. So the so the BDU, the the the, um, the submarine force, is only about three thousand men strong in September nineteen thirty nine. Yeah. And although you've got a lot of experienced guys there, they're pretty limited. And when you see when you finally do want to suddenly expand, you haven't got that experience, that wealth of experience to spread yeah. as you're rapidly expanding. And so therefore, you're going to have to cut corners, which means cutting corners on training, cutting corners on on skippers. Mm-hmm. Skippers are going out. You know, just insufficiently trained for the kind of incredibly challenging and difficult task that lies ahead, uh, and that's one of the big failings. You know, okay, they get up to kind of three hundred U boats, mm-hmm. but but if the quality's poor, that kind of counts for very little. Absolutely. So 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 where's the U.S. Navy in kind of you know say nineteen thirty nine? Yeah, uh, the submarine fleet is very small, and it's it's particularly small at the outbreak of the war. In fact, we still had leftover S boats from World War One and. Which were really just not capable of taking the no. fight all the way to the far shore. So, you see two things happening. You see a massive production drive to build more submarines. So much so that by the end of the war, we're literally building ten submarines a month. Yeah, um, it's amazing, crazy. And it? then, and then you do see a real ramping up of the um, uh, of the submariners that are that are joining it. I mean, it's but it's still a very small arm. I think it's like sixteen thousand sailors throughout the whole course of the war actually fighting submarines. They're small. I mean, you can't fit but about eighty men on board. You know, and so, uh, but they do a really effective job of developing leaders, and they have a policy where you know successful submarine skippers rotate after about three patrols. They think yeah, see, into- I think that's really, really interesting. Which of yeah. course is is one of the failings of the the, the Germans. They uh, and it fails at every level. Yeah, you know, if you're a you're a you know 
a fighter leader you 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 just you're just flying and flying and yeah. flying you know you wear out you wear out and <laughs> exactly that yeah. um and it's exactly the same with the u-boat leaders i mean very very few mm-hmm. get called off and, and you know so the, the the big three aces you know um people like um um preen mm-hmm. and, and um um Shepka and yeah. kretschmer they're all killed or captured between March and May 1941 and they've been on the go since September 1939 yeah. with no break yeah. I mean obviously you're breaking after a patrol but it's kind of go to a patrol have a little bit of downtime go out on the next one yeah. it's just relentless yeah, and, no, uh, so, so instead of taking them out and going okay train these other guys up so you haven't got enough quality of people training yeah. whereas the US Navy doesn't make that mistake right from the outset it's got it's got you know um, what's his name um, um, Burlingame yeah three uh, Burlingame uh, from Silversides yeah. from Silversides he does his view, and then he he's, he's involved in training, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he goes on to be a division commander, and he's training guys. And so you do uh, you do see that rotation, and the idea being as these guys sort of float up, you bring in new blood, you train them, you don't wear them out, etc. Right. There is this one challenge that I do think the Americans face early in the war, which is they don't know how to fight this submarine. So, you know, they develop this sort of perfect weapon, you know, and they for this fight they've got this new strategy take it all the way to the enemy shores. But these early skippers, you do see a divide amongst the early skippers over – uh, how how to fight them, and that that does become sort of an an issue early on because you know you do have great skippers like Creed Burlingame who are like these swashbucklers who have no problems going yeah he's Japanese yeah, harbors yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. going through fishing nets and all that he's he's he's, he's I mean he's a hell of a character isn't he oh, I mean, he he's got this sort of slightly kind of squashed nose and he's yeah. chunky and he's known as Burly isn't he and and you know he's a he's, he's a sort of salty sea dog type and drinks hard when he's unsure oh and, yeah and you know he lived right here in Mount Pleasant no yeah yeah in fact actually he had a house on the other side of town and that's it amazing sold, it sold a few years ago and it was being advertised as the admiral's house wow and so he so, became admiral Bellingham. yeah and in fact he actually taught at the middle school two blocks from here Moultrie middle school where no. my son went and so it was a high school at the time but when i was going through his personnel files at the uh, naval academy really? i found uh what well, he became a teacher he became a history teacher what yeah. that just so, feels all wrong i just feel he should have been kind of sort of you know taking boats out to the very end no man he went on and taught history and was and people loved him it's so funny i mean when the book came out here out of all my neighbors were like oh my god Creed Burlingame he used to live right around here that's incredible <laughs> but he was this amazing skipper in the beginning of the war and he was fearless and and so it took it it took these early skippers to be able to figure out alright how well does the camouflage work on these boats how can the Japanese see us at what range can they see us right. how do we fight do we do, try do, to- you, do you do it at night and come on the surface or do you exactly. stay under under the water and so you really see that that that, that, that happening and I think there's a pretty transformative figure in, in Mush Morton Right, and he's one of my favorites. Of course, you know he is the skipper on the Wahoo, and, and unfortunately, he is one who is lost in the war because he won't follow the advice of the Navy and give it up, and yeah. he wears himself out, and he's eventually lost. But he is really—he had been a wrestler at the Naval Academy, and so he <laughs> he applied the philosophy of wrestling, which is you have to get in close and you have to grapple with your opponent. Right, and you right, have to, right. And so he took that to submarine fighting. And so he would get right up on the Japanese convoy and he would fire and he would fire again and he would he would continue to press the attack until he eventually you know, sank the first convoy. And so and I think later on it was kind of, well, one of them may have gotten away. So it wasn't that. But initially he's credited with being the first submarine skipper to sink an entire Japanese convoy. And he applied – and that strategy kind of And how, how – I mean, you know, the, you're not talking convoys of 42 ships. No, like no it's you like are, four. Really yeah, it's, it's like, like four. Because the Japanese convoys were much, much smaller systems than what we saw in the Atlantic. I mean, they were – you know, and, and early on in the war they didn't even use escorts. I mean, so it was really just, you know, you'd find a handful of merchant ships and, uh, off, you go. and off you go. And so, um, but yeah, so he's really kind of the, I think he's kind of the fulcrum 
in a lot of ways on how the submarine war works because he really kind of comes in and revolutionizes submarine warfare. And, and, and skippers realize at that point, well, hey, we can get a lot closer to Japanese convoys and not be seen. You know, we can fight, as you said, we, can, we spot them during the day, and instead of engaging right away, we follow them all day, and then we attack under the cover of darkness at yeah. night. And they really become hunters. Yeah. And well, that's so, what the U-boats are doing in the Atlantic. It's like, yeah. It's so, well. most, most attacks are at night. Yeah, and so they have to – but there's that learning curve. And, so yeah. that, and it takes guys like Creed Burlingame and Mush Borton to kind of figure that out, so much so that by the middle of the war, you really began seeing just Japanese ship after ship going down. And by the end of the war, there's nothing left. I mean, these guys are out there, and they're fighting over sampans. I mean, there's just they've, they've destroyed. They've Japan, of course. Everything. Yeah, in Japan, and they don't course, have the capacity to rebuild that thing. Exactly. In Japan, yeah. I mean, that's exactly what happens to the Italians and, and yeah. um, Axis forces in the Mediterranean. Yeah. You know, by, by the time of the Sicily invasion, this, you know, it's just little coastal lighters and this yeah. kind of stuff because all the big ones are gone. Yeah, and it's and it's funny because like the skipper, of the drum is this. He's the um, Marius Strom. I mean, Marius uh, Rinskoff is the youngest skipper of World War II. He's twenty six years old when he takes command of the drum. And uh, yeah, uh, and, I can I can see him building to this moment yeah, he's, in, he's, in the book. He starts off kind of you know sort of third oh, or fourth like the, peg, he, and he, then he's he's gunnery officer, isn't yeah, he? Or he's something like, he's like the mess officer. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like having a like, works his commissary, way up. works his way up, takes over, becomes the youngest submarine, which is crazy to think that this 26-year-old is put in trust of like you know this this high-tech submarine of its era but by the time he's ready and he's he goes out to fight there's nothing left to shoot and there's a frustration for these young skippers that hey you know we've worked our way up we're given our chance and like here's like this sampan with a crew of eight people on board <laughs> that's kind of what you're left with and- but 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 once war begins, once once Pearl Harbor's gone, and there is this sudden realization, gosh, actually, we, you know, we need to start using our, our our submarines. Who's running the show? I mean, who, who, you know, obviously it's Nimitz at the top yeah. and King, but yeah. but but how is how is it organized? I mean, you have task force and stuff, and you've yeah. got Bull Halsey and all the rest of it running around with sort of carriers and battleships and yeah. cruisers and destroyers. How is it structured? What's the structure of the? Of yes, the US basically force? they're running. You talk about divisions. Yeah, right? they're running two. Uh, they're running two out operations essentially. One is out of Hawaii, yes, and the other is out of Australia. And so they essentially carve, whereabouts in Australia? It's out uh, Brisbane, and so uh, and they they basically kind of carve up because you have to remember I mean, that. that the Pacific Ocean's huge, 65 million square miles. Like, where are you going to go to find your targets? And so they really basically map out the whole Pacific. And it's great when you look, find these maps and you look at them in the National Archives. They're fascinating. They basically create block systems all over the Pacific. And so you're, each submarine going out is assigned a block. And you go into that area, and anything you see in that area, you shoot. You shoot. Yeah, you're the only boat assigned to that area. And so... Uh, if it's there, it's fair game. And so so they basically carve it up and they sort of say, all right, you know, the boats out of Australia and Brisbane, you know, this is going to be your target areas and, and Hawaii, this is going to be yours. And and, and eventually, and, and, the, and the leader of it all, of course, is a guy by the name of Charles Lockwood, Vice Admiral Charles Lockwood. And he is... And he's um, a great man, isn't he? Oh, he's great. And he... And what's his background? He actually had been a... He, Fought in submarines during World War One, and so he's actually was part of that whole process of bringing. Yes, because he starts on battleships, doesn't he? Or yeah, something, and something and thinks I don't want this. Yeah, and exactly, and goes out on his first submarine ride, and he's like, "Wow, this is this is the future of, of warfare for the Has Navy." The moment. Yeah, and and switches over, ends up in World War One. Is part of that whole group that brings German subs back, pulls them apart, spends his you know his entire interwar period sort of fighting for the uh, to change the tactics that are being used. He's actually in London as an attaché when the yes, war breaks out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's still there, isn't he, when the blitz begins? Yeah, and so he is desperate to get back into submarines, and he eventually does. And he comes in, and he really becomes, he rises up to become sort of 
the father of the American submarine war uh, in the Pacific. Hugely respected. Totally. Doesn't really put a foot wrong. Yeah. Wrote a bunch of books afterwards. I mean, just people loved him. They called him Uncle Charlie. I mean, he was just a, uh, you know, a really uh, a, a great guy, but understood what you could do with an American submarine against right. an adversary like China. And he's, he's based in Australia, isn't he? Yes, yeah. So when you say a division, so what's a division? Is that like a – how does that work? Yeah, they break it up into like certain boats. I think it's like six boats to a division basically. Oh, okay. and so, yeah, so it's, it's really just kind of a way in which to arrange them all. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back shortly. See you in a moment. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. These divisions aren't really operating in the same way as a wolf pack because, no. because no, of the no, scale. They're, they're independent of fighters. And the wolf packs really come along later in the war as essentially as we get more and more boats. I mean, early in the war, you got to remember, we don't have that many boats. No. And so you really, this idea that you're going to fight as a team just simply, it's, it's, it's an impossibility. You've got to be able, because remember, for every boat that's out on patrol, you actually have to have two other boats, essentially. It's three boats. So because the going and the coming. Going, going back and, another one, and then repairs, the repairs and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. I mean, so it's like, yep. you know, you have 100 boats, you're really only going to have a third of those yeah exactly out on patrol at one time because the distance i mean just to get from pearl harbor to japan is like almost two weeks yes you know and so going at 20 knots yeah i mean you're and, and you're on the surface that's exactly what they're doing so i mean just you're looking but to be fair that's that, i mean that's quite a bit faster than a type 7 u-boat for example yeah. which can do what 14 to 16 knots something like that i mean trying, 20 knots is, is not slow and you're going uh, over three thousand miles i mean you're literally going across half the pacific ocean to get there so but it is the distances are big not until later in the war when you have enough boats that you can bring in and have um, the wolf packs and whatnot and right. so that kind of becomes really more of a so they do operate wolf packs with just later, later in the war exactly right, okay. and that's when you have enough boats and then at that point too the Japanese empire has shrunk 
Mm-hmm. You have to remember at the beginning of the war. I mean, the Japanese are fighting all. I mean, they're they're doing raids in Darwin, Australia. Yeah. I mean, they're they're everywhere. And so, but by the latter part, by 1944, you know, they've really been isolated to the Philippines and then sort of you know the, the defensive perimeter, the internal defensive perimeter of, of the Japanese Empire. So the distances have shrunk, and sure. so everybody's sure, sure, kind sure. of coming in. And at that point too, and the, the wolf packs are highly successful too. I mean, because yeah. you. You know, you kind of come in just like a wolf. You yeah. attack over and over and over again. You know, Japanese convoys, and of course, the tragedy at that point too is oh, some of those ships are being used to transport American prisoners of war mm. and Allied prisoners of war back to the homeland, to the, the main island of Honshu, to dig air raid shelters, work in mines. up the bottom as well. Exactly. So that's kind of one of the big tragedies because the Japanese never marked any of those boats. You know, to so we don't know. Yeah, we still don't know what. We know, no. There were some survivors on some, like the Arison Maru is one of the worst. I think like uh, almost 2,000 uh, folks went down on that. I think it was like 1,800 went down. There were about nine survivors, I believe. So oh we know God. we know some anecdotal yeah, stuff yeah. like that. But th- there may be others, you know. They were the hell ships, as they, yeah, 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 as they yeah, call yeah, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember talking to someone who'd been on a hell ship, and it did sound like a hell ship. I mean, yeah. you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a name that was used lightly. I mean, no, no, God. I mean, I mean it, it was horrific. I think one of the best descriptions, uh, and for, for listeners who may not be familiar, I mean, these, this is how Japanese transported Allied prisoners of war. They just packed so many people inside the hull of a ship without, of course, no air conditioning, no air movement, no nothing, in the tropics, and would steam them back no to Japan. Facilities. No toilet facilities, any of that. And uh, one guy described it best. He's like, it's like putting marbles in a jar. And eventually, you just can't fit another marble in there. Nothing will move. And he's like, that's what it was. And, wow. of course, the heat on board was, you know, well over 100 degrees. I mean, you have stories of people drinking urine, literally cutting people to drink their blood. I mean, it's just horrific stories that come out of those hell ships. So, so you, you've got this vast expanse of the Pacific, and you've got this comparatively few numbers of submarines operating there. How are they discovering where a kind of convoy of four little... Mm-hmm. Japanese ships is coming from yeah. because it's a big old place and yeah. you know four ships is very very easy to lose yeah no or exactly just never and, find well and there, there are a couple different ways early in the war it's really trial and error I mean because you know what they do is when they're mapping out sort of these patrol areas as I was talking about earlier on these maps they, they figure well you know We'll put them around, you know. When you say early in the war, we're talking 1942. Yeah, exactly. And so you're you're putting the patrol areas are going to be around areas you know that you're going to have boats coming into. They're going to be major sea lanes, ports, things of that nature where you know there's Japanese are going to be moving supplies, moving ships. Uh, by 43, we actually break the Japanese code, the Mario code. And so at that point. Is that the JN25 or whatever yeah, it's called? Yeah, it's the. Uh, and so is the JN25? The JN25 is their, is their naval code, yeah. yeah. And so we actually at that point can start reading their maritime traffic. So we can right. direct. Submarines and say, you know, on such and such date at noon, you can go to these coordinates. And but, just but, 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 I mean, but that in itself is quite a big deal, isn't it? I oh, mean, I mean, to, to, to be able to crack that. I mean, I mean, we all know about Enigma machines and stuff, but but how do the Japanese code their material? Uh, do they have an, an Enigma machine equivalent? Oh gosh, now, of course, now you're going to make me dig back in my memory on that. They they had a. Uh, it's got it's got about sort of three different levels, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it kind of went through. You had to have certain keys, and it went through. Uh, Gosh, um, <laughs> you well, did. Don't yeah. worry. It's incredibly it. complicated. It is, and it had to like you had to sort of had the key on one end and then undo it. I mean, it, it was a multiple layered process right. in which things were done. And so, so to break it is 
is an incredible feat of... It was. And so I think, as I recall, the, the FBI raided the Japanese uh, embassy and stole the, some of the code books and then hired professors who had worked in Tokyo to help understand right. it all and apply it. And then, and then of course, a lot of it was trial and error and whatnot. So, but right. by 43, we're they, at a they, point... They've got it. They can read it, exactly. And so they know at that point, so, hey, all right, on such and such date, you'll find at these coordinates, you'll find this. And so at that point, all you got to do is show up and wait. Yeah. And so then the destruction. Yeah, because what's amazing is is how often they they sort of go, okay, I'm here, and oh, there, there it is, there they well, are. I the, mean, literally every single time. That's it's the beauty of Japanese efficiency. I mean, I, one of my favorite <laughs> stories is you know the shoot down of Admiral Yamamoto in 1943 is because you know somebody puts in out a you know a a, a message saying you know the admiral's going to arrive at 9:03 a.m. you know at such and such airfield and you know and he is and he shows up and so the U.S. plots this entire strategy based on an arrival at you know 9:00 3 a.m. and you back out how long it's going to take to fly and whatnot and you know they intercept him within a minute i mean so you know japanese punctuality doomed yamamoto and it dooms so many of these boats as well yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow so okay so they've got they've got that from 1943 onwards yeah also one of the ongoing problems is is, is the issues of, of the fish the torpedoes yeah that, that that are just total duds and it's and again it's Lockwood who kind of un, un, unlocks all that. that isn't it yeah and that's kind of one of the big travesties of the early part of the submarine war because a lot of great opportunities for destruction were lost and what it came down to is if for folks that don't know I mean a torpedo is actually a very sophisticated weapon I mean, of course it's, it's not just an underwater rocket I mean it's essentially a, a, a submarine you know it runs off of fuel and it's got you know twin propellers and, and whatnot and so it uh uh, and they were very, very expensive. They were about twenty five hundred, um, uh, or no, I think they were about was it about ten thousand dollars? Yeah, ten thousand dollars yeah. each, aren't they? And so it was about actually, as I recall, about twenty five hundred dollars was a naval ensign salary for a year. So I mean, really, like one torpedo costs what it would, you know, the the, the wages of four young officers in the navy. Um, and so, but they, they and they were designed so that they would go underneath the. Uh, keel of a ship, they would detect the change in the, mag- in, in, in the magnetic field there and then detonate, or they were designed to hit and detonate on impact. But they had all these problems, and so these skippers early on in the war were going out. Well, they were set too low, weren't they? Yeah, so they were, well, they didn't know that initially. So they go out, and these skippers are taking these shots, and they're they're missing, and they're like, man, I was right up on this convoy, how did I miss? So they were coming back, and they were reporting these problems, and so they had the Bureau of Ordnance, they called it the Gun Club, was saying, no, no, we have a perfect weapon. You guys are just bad shots. Yeah. And it really demoralized. My plays, uh, plays yeah. those tools. And it demoralized a lot of these guys. Yeah, why, so why some of them it? said, look, hey, if I, if I can't hit it, I'm going to get out and let somebody who's better than I get in. And so and it really takes Lockwood figuring out and saying, you know what, he believed his guys. And so what he did is down in Australia, he gets these fishermen, and they string up these nets, and they fire some practice torpedoes. And lo and behold, they realize that they're running too deep. Yep. And so, and at that point, from then on, they kind of have to start jury rigging things to kind of make it work. And yeah, you, know, you you change it a little bit, and you create another problem here. But they effectively solve the problem and sort of get it back up. But the the big but, but don't they then develop a kind of a, a, an upgraded torpedo? Or am I imagining that? No, I mean they kind of they sort of yeah, they do. They get the electric torpedo later on. That's it. And that's so, it, yeah. But um, but but this one the, the gas powered torpedoes it's much faster longer range all that kind of stuff and so uh, but they do and they ultimately will fight the war with both throughout uh, but the challenge they have is that all these opportunities because early in the war Japan just they didn't use escorts so you got there I mean you had skippers coming across convoys just full of supplies and fuel and all that that just they couldn't hit yeah. and so by later later on in the war Japan 
does after they start losing boats develop a very extensive convoy system and you know escorts and all that it makes the job much much harder so all this 18 months of lost opportunity could have you know brought the japanese economy crashing down even it's, earlier it's amazing for a, for a nation that is is so um brilliant in terms of technology and engineering and uh, and investing so much time and effort into its into its into its um war aims doesn't put a little bit more emphasis on this earlier on i mean and and you see this of course it's, it's human nature and it's it's just you know you see this at every level with every nation they're always making mistakes of course because so, there is so much to think about but but it's amazing isn't it with the with the submarine force it's kind of sort of out of sight out of mind a little mm-hmm. bit and and you, and you can see the kind of the preeminence of the carrier and, yeah. and the kind of surface vessels it's kind of, sort of reign supreme and so the submarine forces never seem to get whether they be German, whether they be British, whether they be American or whatever, or Japanese. They never seem to get quite the kind of the priority that they should do. Yeah, and they well, part of that for the U.S. was it was so highly secretive, you know, and so right. they didn't want to broadcast that. I mean, that said, later on in the war, you did have these huge submarine skippers who became celebrities, but they were really guarded about the type of successes they were having because they didn't want to alert the enemy. The interesting thing about the Japanese is that they failed to ever grasp the importance of the submarine. You, know, the, you saw that interwar period in the U.S. really coalesce around a strategy and a new type of submarine. And the Japanese, meanwhile, are tinkering. And, and they build a whole – I mean, they have everything from midget submarines to, mm. to boats that are big enough to carry Rather float just planes. One. Yeah, and so they never come up with a, a coherent strategy for how to fight them. So they, they use them largely as part of their, 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 their surface fleet. And so, and meanwhile, you know, the Americans had these massive convoys coming all the way across the Pacific to fight. I mean, we'd just been sitting prey, you know, for the Japanese to do the exact same thing we did. In fact, the German attaches are constantly telling the Japanese, you've got to look at what the Americans are doing to you. You've got to adopt the same type of tactics. And And what do they say in response? They're like, no, 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 no. I mean, because the Japanese were constantly fighting the last war. I mean, so the, the one area that they had success in early in the war was they did realize the value of carrier aviation. And Pearl right. Harbor is a perfect example of that. And Yamamoto is a big part of that because, you know, yeah. you know, he is uh, – Admiral Yamamoto had gone to school at Harvard. He'd spent right, a lot right, of time right. in North America. Yeah. I mean, he was, caught, he was picked up one time going around, you know, oil refineries in Mexico. I mean, people understood that. Yamamoto understood that, hey, this is going to be a different type of war. But so much of the naval establishment in Japan didn't. You know, they were constantly thinking, we're going to have this one big sea battle, yes. and it's going to shape everything. Well, we did have that one big sea battle, and it's called, it's called Midway, and you lost it. You yeah, know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or Leyte Gol, for example. But, and, but there might be another one. There might we, be, and, we might win that one. And so they really yeah. – and, and the same thing with the submarines is they're constantly – they don't see that, hey, why don't we look at what happened to Great Britain during World War One with submarines, and why don't we recognize that we're also an island nation? And then even as it's happening to them, even as the American submarines – are just destroying their merchant fleets, they don't change their tactics. And they don't think, actually, why don't we try and destroy the American merchant fleets? Exactly. There's none of that. And, of course, you know, I mean, the convoys that we're bringing in, I mean, for, for example, for the invasion of Luzon, I mean, it's it's like over a 1,000 ships bringing in, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops, all the supplies, the vehicles, the fuel, yep. the food, the pallets and stuff. All that would have been right for that, and they just never embraced that. And they also were really bad with anti-submarine technology. You know, they absolutely believed that a lookout was far superior than radar. Uh, and of course, insane, that doesn't it? work well I mean, at night. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, I mean, it really does. Well, those Gato classes, I mean, they've all got radar on board right from the oh, go, yeah. haven't they? Yeah, they and, 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 and the Americans become big believers in radar. And well, big, why wouldn't it, you? Yeah, and so and the, the, all the skippers did. And so 
they uh, but the Japanese didn't, and it's just it's, it's, it's blind it? spot after blind spot after blind spot. And, um, and why is that? I mean, it's so bizarre, isn't it? It's, it seems so obvious. You would have thought someone kind of high up would go, "Hang on a minute, chaps." Well, and just what happens too is so they start losing all their senior people. You know, I mean, I Yamamoto gets shot down. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you go through. I mean, then like, everyone else is sort of you know kills themselves when their ship goes down. <laughs> yeah. So you know? I mean, you really see just this massive attrition of their of their senior leaders. So 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 the, so the torpedoes improve, and the, and then you know you have these incredible submarines like mm-hmm. like the Wahoo and, and yeah. like Tang and, yeah. and so on and, and Drum that just just start accumulating huge amounts of enemy shipping oh yeah i mean the tang is one of the i mean you know dick o'kane was a protege of mush morton i mean they were really good friends uh so i mean he he was his executive officer so he helped mush morton pioneer these new tactics and then of course when it's time for dick to take over his own boat you know he goes back to california to mare island to pick up the tang and that's when morton is lost and so when and he refuses to believe it you know he how could the japanese get mush morton his best friend and of course so he shows back up in Hawaii, and the first thing he does is he goes to see, you know, his, um, I think it's Admiral Lockwood at the time, and he says, you know, I need to understand, did they actually get him? And he's, he, he confirms that they did. And so really, O'Kane then goes out on one of the most destructive submarine campaigns. I mean, he's literally sinking a ship for every 10 days he's on patrol. I mean, it's just racking up just staggering numbers of... Uh, and he only serves five patrols before, you know, the tank is sadly hit by one of its own torpedoes. I mean, one of these fluke moments where a torpedo malfunctioned and it sort of porpoised and it circled all the way back and it, and so dick ends up in a uh, japanese prisoner of war camp ouch and uh yeah exactly and spends a better part of the last year in prison and uh, what happens to him in the end you know he uh so because he's one of the i mean he's one of the legends isn't he of, of, oh yeah of the, of, the, yes. of the submarine war in the pacific totally and uh as is much more of course yeah, they both, they really are. I, I, in a lot of ways, I think the two of them kind of are sort of that top of that pyramid, so to speak. Right. Because they're, both of those boats are just two of the most successful boats. Um, and the, the, the amazing thing about it is the Tang does that in nine months. I mean, that's how little, I mean, you, you, Silversize is a highly successful boat. It fights the entire war. Yeah. You know, the Drum is a very successful boat. It fights the entire war. Yeah. Tang does it in like literally less than a year. Yeah. And uh, and it comes down to you know just the the crazy tenacity of your skipper and, and a bit of luck but yes but Dick O'King was a really great submarine skipper so anyway they get they get hit by their own torpedo um, uh, off the Chinese coast their boat actually goes down and so uh, a lot of the guys have to escape from 180 feet down uh, make That's their way insane, up isn't and it? so oh, wow. yeah they're uh, out of a crew of I think about 87 I think it's about nine of them survive wow. and they are captured by the Japanese and they're beaten tortured you know and uh, starved all that kind of stuff they're sent to Camp Ofuno which is this unregistered prisoner of war camp and now, how many of them survived that most of those guys did survive yeah um, but it was a brutal existence yeah. you know they um, of course. they came out all weighing less than 100 pounds yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they had teeth knocked out from yeah, you know, being yeah, punched yeah. on they, they witnessed just awful treatment of themselves and their you know, other prisoners. And what happens to O'Kane in the uh, you know post war? So he he ends up uh, in the navy for a while, and then he eventually gets out. and um, And he's you know one of those guys. Uh, he um, he's never able to let go of what happens right. to him there. In fact, he developed Alzheimer's later in life. He tragically was constantly saying to his wife, he would go out toward the sea and say, you know, I've got to go get my men. I've got to go get my men. And it really, oh, that, those awful. losses haunted him. And, um, and so he, all the way up until he died. And so he, um, when did he pass away? Oh God, probably back in the nineties. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So a while ago. 
Sony had a highly successful son, actually. His son, Jim O'Kane, went on to design the helmet that's used by astronauts. Yeah. So, yeah, they're really a uh, wow. qu- oh, quite a family. family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> it makes me feel I haven't done enough in life. <laughs> yeah. You've the same. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, and let's just, just just before we stop, let's, let's just talk about kind of life on board. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's it's... It's challenging to say the least, but one of the things I thought was amazing was to discover that you, you know they still, you know, American American servicemen still have to have their Coca Cola, and they they, yeah. they still get that even on submarines, you know. Oh, but yeah. but they get around the problem by having uh, effectively a soda stream and cola syrup yeah. that you put in the water. I mean, that's just incredible. Well, that's exactly. You have to remember. I mean, you've got this this boat that's only twenty seven feet wide, and you've got to carry enough food, fuel, yeah. and supplies for eighty men for up to three months. And so the boat becomes a pantry. And so yeah. they, they they literally fill the entire shower full of like you know condensed milk and whatnot. And so. And of course, how do you keep food fresh that long? Yeah, the idea is you really you can't. I mean, you take fresh food out and you eat. But the you've fresh got freezers. There's freezers. You do have there huge fridges, fridges, which is amazing. And so they took. I, I, I absolutely know that there's not a, a British wartime or German wartime submarine that has a fridge or a freezer in it. Oh yeah, no, they they definitely did. And so they they quite right yeah, too. And they carried. And when I say one of the great finds I had was when I um, the drum actually when they the drum is now a museum ship in Mobile, Alabama. And so is it? It, it is. Yeah. And so they. Um, oh wow. When they decommissioned it and made it into a museum ship, they pulled all the batteries out. And inside the battery well, they left a whole bunch of banker's boxes of World War II records. And so when I was doing my research, I went through all those records. And one of the things I was most interested in is the commissary receipts. Because I'm like, how do you shop for a submarine? Yeah. You know, and it was interesting because they were buying like 1,800 dozen eggs to take out there. I mean, they were taking like 5,000 pounds of chicken. Of course, you take boneless chicken because the bone is just – it's wasted space. It's yeah. wasted. So yeah, I mean, yeah, and so yeah. they had to be really, really crafty with that. But it was so interesting to look at that because as what happens, you you eat all your fresh food first, and then you move into your canned food. And so the good cooks learned things like, well, you know, cabbage stays fresh the longest. Yeah, that was amazing. You know, and that. so they. Uh, and also, you know, that you could, uh, your flour invariably gets weevils in it. And so that rather than try to sift them all out, you know, the smart the smart cooks just kind of threw in caraway seeds and baked rye bread, figuring the sailors will never notice that we've sort of baked this extra protein in their bread. So they did. Yeah, they, they you couldn't take big things of Coca-Cola, so you took the syrup and you carbonated the water yourself. I mean, so everything had to be, it was a, it was fascinating how they thought of everything to yeah. be able to do that. And um, But, you you know, if you're doing those long trips, you need, you need a... Yeah, a few creature comforts, or else you're just going to go. You're going to go mad. I mean, exactly. And that's the thing is, you have you're to, in an incredibly brutal and tough environment. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to be so tough and to you, kind of put up with one of those patrols, haven't you? Oh, and it, it, and just, just to exist. Just to exist. Forget the fighting bit. Forget the risk. Some of these guys, if you're not on lookout, like you don't see daylight for three months. You know, if you're bu- if you're down below, and you know, and, and you have to remember these boats, they get when they turn off. When like for instance, they're, they're being depth charged, you know, they shut down the air conditioning system, so it gets incredibly hot and humid on them at that time. And so they tell if you're if you're doing silent running like that, if you're not in a battle station, you go lay in a bunk and you just lay there as depth charges are coming down around mm. and it's hot and it's humid and it smells like sweat. Yep. And, and the next just, one could be your end. The next one could be your end. And so you have these kind of moments like that. And there's no, of course, you know, there's no entertainment. There's no Facebook. There's no Twitter. You yeah. know, I mean, so you you, you took a, a box of a thousand paperback novels that they took with them, and they took phonographs. And and one of the best things I found in one of the letters of a silver size officer. And he served the almost the entire war on board, which was kind of a fluke. But he wrote a letter to his wife. He said, I've been on board now. I have burned through five 1,000 record needles on my phonographs. I mean, he played 5,000 records. 
yeah. over the course of his time on that. I mean, just think about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. how much ACDC can you play? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. I mean, you know, who who would be the kind of the the, the crooners of the day? I mean, yeah. yeah. So I mean, it really is. I mean, it's just a uh, you got to really like the guys you're with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you've got to trust them, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, you've got this incredible story about about the the ship's pharmacist. Yeah, I, and I love this. So, so, so basically, you know, there isn't space or the capacity to have a medical officer there who yeah. is like a doctor. Yeah. So you have the next best thing, which is someone who has a crash course in kind of first aid. Yeah, he's a pharmacist, mate, and he's got what twelve weeks of training. I mean, they, they call him the quack. I mean, yeah. you know, he's there for your catastrophic it's like a injuries. course of leeches. It's yeah. kind of about the level of his knowledge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so, uh, and there's this incredible story yeah. of the guy having his appendix taken out exactly so here they are off for a ball on the silver sides and it's like a few days before christmas 1942 and one of the guys comes down with uh appendicitis and of course you know what are you going to do you know you're on this <laughs> you're in the middle of the pacific yeah and none of that's a really right really this, bad time you're, to get right appendicitis. This, you're right off this japanese base it's not like you can just surface and call in a float plane so yeah. it's like you know it's a creed burlingame has to tell this young pharmacist he's like well you're just gonna have to operate on him and this guy's like, uh, I don't know okay. what I'm doing. <laughs> you know? And so they actually prepare the wardroom in the Silver Sides yeah. as his operating table. And, so and I love the fact that he's too long for the for the, so they have for to the use wardroom, an ironing board. The yeah. ironing board to kind of put his feet on. Well, you know, the Silver Sides is a museum ship today. In is Muske- it? In Muskegon, Michigan. And no. so when I was working on this, I went up there and I went in that wardroom and I sat there. Because I wanted to, ex- you know, just like you walk in yeah, battlefields, yeah. you want to experience. Wow. So, I had no idea. And I took a tape measure and you, know, you measure how long the, the table is and all that. But yes, yeah, so they have to literally prop him up on this and um, and put him under and of course they actually the um, executive officer on the ship was an amateur photographer and so he shot photographs of this surgery well and you've got one in the book oh you? yeah and it's amazing and here these guys are shirtless you know sweating doing the surgery I mean one guy's and holding Tom a, uh, what's the name of the, 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 the pharmacist mate Tom something or other oh um um, is it Moore? Tom Moore, exactly. Tom Moore, yeah. and, and, he, and, and you can George see him. Flatter. He's yeah. literally just wearing a vest. And, and the photo that you put in the book is, is of him leaning over, and it's just this intense concentration. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, this it's sur- just incredible. This surgery that would normally take fifteen minutes today takes him like four hours. You know? Yeah, but because <laughs> he does the incision, doesn't he? he? Does. And he identifies the appendix, and he and he he chops it off, yeah. pulls it out, and that's all cool. And, and then he does just a little swab just to make sure that he's, you know, no cauterized it properly, yeah. no internal bleeding. And there's lots of internal bleeding. And he just goes, oh, my God, where's this coming from? Oh, yeah. So then he starts pulling out the poor guy's intestines, going, you know, like you would on a kind of sort of repairing a, a bicycle <laughs> puncture. Kind of, you know, where's the hole? Yeah. Uh, it's just extraordinary. And it takes yeah. him, and the guy wakes up, doesn't he? The guy wakes up, and so, because, you know, and, and so he ultimately has to re... Looks down, sees so his guts he, coming out. Because he's this literally pulling wrong. them out, and he's going, you know, searching them inch by inch, trying to figure out where this bleeder is coming from. He's pouring sweat at this point. He's like, I'm going to kill this guy. I mean, he's, I mean, can you imagine the stress on this young guy? <laughs> Somebody, so, he's, t- he's like 22, 22 isn't he? 22 years old, you know, 12 yeah. weeks of training. Yeah. And so the guy wakes up, and they're like, "Oh my god, we've got to, you know, we've got to reanesthetize him." And so they they open up a can of ether, which think which is a problem because oh, you're on an enclosed ventilation system, <laughs> and it gets so sucked. everyone gets etherized. So I, I interviewed one guy uh, who lived here in Mount Pleasant that served on that patrol. And no, so, yeah, and so he um, he was in the conning tower, and he said everybody got woozy. I mean, throughout that entire boat, and so yeah. but they knock him back out. He does eventually find he kind of the where where he was bleeding from had been hidden behind a towel he'd used for prep work, and he's able to kind of seal it off. Stitch him back up, and of course, George Platter goes on to live into his 80s. In fact, one of the great things too, and Tom Moore's son ended up becoming a doctor and a surgeon later on in life. So wow! But it was a, it's a great story, and uh, that you know, 
I mean, really. And there were a couple of those types of stories during World War II, but it's uh, the Silver Sides. That's, that's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, it's an amazing story. I mean, I was... <laughs> When you're reading it, you're just thinking, "Come on, come on, find it." Yeah, you know, it's so. just incredible. I mean, it is. It is. I mean, how, how how would you how would you place you know what what those submarines achieved in in its part in total victory against Japan? It's a huge part of it. I mean, in fact, in 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 and so. <laughs> And of course, here I am, and yet, and yet the least known. It is, and here I am on the one hand. So I've written this book on the, the great success of the submarine war, and then I've also now written this book Tokyo. on the firebombing of Tokyo and the destruction by the air campaign. And of course, both sides claim total credit, but the reality is, is that Japan's economy by the summer of 1944 has sort of crossed its apex and it's beginning its sort of death spiral. Mm. And that's before the first I, I just keep, even I, takes off. I just can't get my head around the fact that 88% of GDP, Japanese GDP is spent on defense by yeah. late 1944. Yeah. I mean, that's just incredible. And they can't get anything in anymore. They can't get any supplies in. So there's no ability to, to you know, build new fighters much. There's no ability to... I mean, they're working off stockpiles at that point because you just cannot get the raw. And so that's what the submarines really accomplish. They break the back of the Japanese economy. But here's the thing. It's really hard for the Japanese for public, you know, because at the end, you know, America's also trying to demonstrate to the Japanese public that they're defeated, you know, so they can break through the propaganda. Yep. And it's really hard to do that by saying, well, you're not getting enough bauxite in to build it for right. aluminum and do that. So that is where the air war kind of comes in because the air war then is, it's, demonstrates the American superiority through the right. destruction of Japan's yeah, cities yeah. and things like that. So it's really this one-two punch. And the U.S. Strategic Bomb Survey actually said, I mean, Japan's economy was, and Japan was effectively destroyed twice over. Once by the submarine war, which broke the back of its economy, and second by the reduction of its cities through firebombing. Right. And so they, those two things really, I think, it's the one-two punch that brings right, right, that brings right. them to an end. And so. do you do you think Admiral Leahy was right that, that you didn't need to kind of drop a bomb? You could just yeah, you know, here's, and that's uh, you, you could just starve Japan out and then eventually yeah. you know save the whole thing. They, they, I mean, that's and that's where they, I mean Japan was in that in that process. It would have just taken a lot longer. Uh, I mean, the Japanese were used to a smaller diet than the Americans and, and whatnot. I mean, they were um, their daily caloric intake was already traditionally lower than the, the Americans. Uh, they had shown themselves to be very resourceful in how long they could hold out. So how long do you want to hold out? I mean, how long is the world's patience? Because also at that point, you have to remember, I mean, about 100,000 people are dying every month in Asia. I mean, China loses 20 million people over the course of the war. So the longer you drag this out, you're leading to more starvation, more battle deaths, things like that. And I think the American perspective was, we have to end this. And so, and the atomic bomb does give, if you look at what Hirohito says in his uh, uh, rescript there, he blames it. It gives him a political tool to say, mm. all right, we're out. We're done. You know, cause, yep. uh, yeah. uh, but there was a lot of fear. You know, After the first atomic bombs dropped and Japan doesn't surrender, I mean, there's a sense of like, oh, my God, did this – we thought really? this – you know, because, I mean, Marshall says, look, yep. hey, they didn't surrender after the Tokyo firebombing. You know, we had to have we had to up our ante, to, so to speak. And then after Hiroshima, they're like, uh, it's, here it is, like, August 7th, August 8th. They're like, Japan hadn't surrendered. We've only got one bomb left. I mean, what's it going to take? And, of course, after Nagasaki, they eventually do. But um, – but yeah, so that's the uh, that's the intensity of that whole end of the war. But yeah, you know, and LeMay and so, some of those guys too. They they didn't think that. Look, Japan. They the only reason Hiroshima existed as a target was because LeMay had been ordered to hold back a few bigger cities so that they could test the weapon. I mean, yeah. as LeMay said, you know, all the heavy lifting was done. I mean, by that point in the war, he's burning down cities with a population of thirty five thousand. I mean, he's just burned through Japan's major cities, its secondary cities, and now its tertiary cities. So you know, the atomic bomb is really. You know, it's a. Uh, it doesn't have that sort of effect that 
beyond because they're already they're already beat they're already defeated and so the idea is that it's like, it's, it's like you've convinced them that they're defeated how do you convince them to surrender unconditionally and so uh, but that's what if you look at what Hirohito said it, he totally the atomic bomb gives him the face saving way out well a lot to think about there um, yeah. James thank you that's 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 been fantastic really 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 interesting Jim thanks for having me back on cheerio 